Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Westminster Stories. My name is Anthony Giorgio. I'm the video and podcast director for the forum. And hi, my name is Kat Taylor, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the forum. So we've got an episode today from uh, our production manager, Ella Viesters, and she is also a forum staff reporter this semester. And she's got a podcast about the Wasatch Fault line. Kat, when you were in grade school, did you ever have to participate in the shakeout? Oh, the great shake? <laughs> yes, you the, mean great, the great shake. The great shake, yes. You didn't call it the great shake. Did you not? Is it the great shake or the great shake out? Uh, according to Google, it is called the great shake out. The great shake out. Great shake out. I just have this memory of like the intercom would come on and it was always so corny. It would be like, everyone get ready to participate in the great shakeout. And then it was this hokey, like recorded rumbling. And then everyone just sort of like tucked their head between their legs underneath their desks. And we just waited. I definitely felt like my teachers just had, were forced to take it so seriously. Yeah. But they didn't want to. They yeah. could care less. But I mean, as it turns out, you know, as ridiculous as those drills felt, Westminster College is actually not that far from a fault line. I don't know how many people realize this, but in the podcast today, our reporter Ella is going to talk about it with Assistant Professor of Honors in Geology, Nick Pollock, that we have a fault line that pretty much runs right under 1300 East. Yeah, maybe that's what causes all the congestion on... (laughs) 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 <laughs> Traffic-wise. <laughs> You're suggesting that seismic activity is responsible for the congestion on 13th East? Oh, God, no. I'm just making a joke. <laughs> cracking a joke. Get it? What? <laughs> cracking a joke. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like cracking like cracking a fault line. Cracking the fault line That's... that runs under 13th. All right. Enough of this nonsense, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy this interview with Assistant Professor Nick Pollock. Welcome back to the Forum Podcast, everyone. My name is Ella Viesters, and I'm the production manager for the Forum. Today I'm here with Nick Pollock, an assistant professor of honors in geology at Westminster College. Nick is here to give us a little geology lesson on the Wasatch Fault, which runs right along the base of the Wasatch Mountains to the east of the Westminster campus. We will be talking about the general characteristics of a fault line, how the Wasatch Fault specifically behaves, which geological structures it has formed, and any implications of living near a fault such as this one. I'm Nick Pollock, my pronouns are he, him, his, and I started here at Westminster as, like you said, Professor of Honors in Geology a little over a year ago, so the fall of 2020. And before that, I was finishing my PhD in geosciences up at Boise State. I have been doing geology throughout the Western US really for about the last 10 years. Uh, Most of my research has focused on geologic hazards um, and specifically a lot of actually volcanic hazards. Uh, My PhD research was on Mount St. Helens up in Washington, which uh, has had the most significant Uh, volcanic eruption in the history of the United States and that happened in 1980. So geologic hazards are something that are super interesting to me, super important. Um, I really see them as kind of the link between what we study and what we put all of our, you know, academic energy into, but it's the link between that and what's actually important for society. Awesome. 
Um, well, thank you for being here. And the reason I wanted to talk to you today is because even before I took a geology class myself, I would hear whispers about things like the Great Shake and people saying that if there were to be a significant seismic event in the West, that we would basically be screwed here in Salt Lake. So are there any general statements or assumptions about the Wasatch Fault that can be debunked or confirmed? Ooh. Well, you know, I think that the fears are well-founded. We do live in a geologically active area. And as someone who, you know, even if you're a student moving to this area for the first time, you're only going to be here for four years, you know, and then you want to move somewhere else. It's important that you're aware of the hazards in the area that you're living. And like I said, this is a geologically active area. We have one of the most seismically active faults in North America, probably less than 100 meters away from campus. So in addition to that, we have snow avalanches and landslides and kind of a whole host of geologic hazards. But certainly first and foremost is the Wasatch Fault. We do live in a geologically active area, and I think it's important that as residents here, we're aware of the hazards of our region, and the Wasatch Fault does present a significant geologic hazard. So being aware of that hazard is important. Being educated about the possibility of an earthquake uh, is important. I wouldn't say that there is are any major myths to be debunked. There is always the risk of an earthquake, you know, whether that's going to happen tomorrow or in 10 or 100 years, a 1000 years, we don't know, but it certainly will happen at some point in the future. And so kind of taking it back a little to give a mini lesson to our listeners about what a fault line is, and what exactly happens when there is seismic activity. Sure. So a fault line in its most simple terms is just anywhere that there's a break in rocks. And so these faults can be anything from, you know, a couple feet long to miles to hundreds of miles long. And the Wasatch Fault here is significant. It's, you know, probably over 100 miles long. And it is a break that is in the Earth's crust caused by large scale forces. So when we're talking about tectonic plates and plates moving around on Earth's surface, there's lots of forces involved in moving these plates around. And sometimes those forces cause the plates to be stressed, meaning that there's forces pulling them in opposite directions or pushing them towards each other that actually causes these rocks to break. And our Wasatch Fault here in Utah is a, a perfect example of that, a place where the earth is being stretched apart and is causing these massive cracks uh, in the earth's crust. Not open cracks, not like you could fall into it, but a crack nonetheless and significant forces involved in breaking that rock. And so when, say, there was tectonic activity the Wasatch Fault is a normal fault, right? Mm -hmm. And so that means it moves up and downwards in relation to each side of the crack? Yeah, so we generally think of breaking faults into two major categories, uh, really three, but we'll just talk about two of the major three. One that we call normal faults, the other called reverse faults. And normal fault is created when forces are pulling the crust apart. Reverse faults are the exact opposite. They're where the the crust is being pushed together. So in our case, with the Wasatch Fault, the crust here is being stretched apart, almost like an accordion. So in both cases, normal faults and reverse faults, there's up and down motion. But here we're causing the, the crust to be stretched and pulled apart 
so that the valley where we're living is actually dropping down relative to the Wasatch Mountains that are being pushed up slightly. The Wasatch Mountains are probably the most significant geological structure created by this fault. Is that, you'd say that's right? Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, when you drive up I-15 and you're following this long stretch of mountains that you can see off to the east, that is evidence of the fault, you know, throughout central Utah here, where the the Wasatch Mountains have been pushed up and up and up over a long period of time, and the valley is progressively dropping down. And so we get this really impressive, you know, mountain range as a result of that very slow movement along the fault. And what are some specific characteristics of the Wasatch Fault? Maybe what kind of rock is it? How old is it? Um, how often is it growing? So the Wasatch Fault grows pretty continuously. I mean, there are these major events that when we have major earthquakes where we can get up to 10 feet of motion along this fault at a single, you know, in a single moment or, you know, over, over a very short period of time. Um, but there's, there is very small amounts of motion that's happening all the time. In terms of its history, you know, the Wasatch Fault has been, has been active for a very long time, probably in the neighborhood of 15 million years or so. And the rocks that are involved in this are really, really old. Some of them 300 million years old in some cases, but we're also living on top of where we are in Salt Lake. We're on very young sediments. So the sediment that we're on is probably less than 15,000 years. So a really wide range in terms of the ages of rocks that are involved on these two separate sides, the Wasatch Mountains being older and the sediment that we're living on top of being much younger. And so we, as you said, we might be as close as 100 meters or yards. Is that pretty accurate? You think it's right? right over there. <laughs> so when you're driving down 1300 East, you're pretty much driving on the fault. It is, you know, when you're, when you're headed up 13th and you're headed North, basically when you come to 13th East and 13th South, um, there's a really sharp, steep hill right there. That's pretty much the exposed fault, what we call the fault scarp, which is where we can actually see where one part of the fault is being pushed up and the other piece of the fault is being pushed down. Here it's not quite so obvious, but from some of the studies that have been done over the last 10, 20, 30 years, we're pretty sure that the fault runs basically along 1300 East. Whoa. <laughs> so really not far at all from campus. Yeah. That earthquake that happened kind of right when the pandemic hit, it was relatively small as I recall. Yeah, it was. So that was actually my first earthquake, or at least okay. my first major earthquake. I did not. I thought it was I thought it was big. It was bigger than obviously any earthquake that I had ever seen. Um, it is small relative to what our faults here in Utah are capable of producing. But I know, you know, talking to lots of friends that were here, it was pretty traumatic. I mean, you know, they talked about feeling the aftershocks in the days after and kind of having a little bit of PTSD almost, which is really, it's a, it's a common, well-documented thing that people get very nervous um, about the fact that there was this kind of medium-sized earthquake. We know that there's a possibility for a larger earthquake and everyone still, you know, has earthquakes on their mind. And so they're thinking, oh, is this, you know, is this small aftershock going to lead to a much bigger earthquake? So even though it's small relative to the big earthquake, it was still pretty significant. And did that event change any predictions that the geology community as a whole was thinking would be like the next big the great shake i guess i i haven't seen that i don't think that it really changed the overall picture 
it's certainly true that when you have an earthquake in uh, in one on one fault, because this the fault that happened uh, back in twenty early twenty twenty wasn't on the Wasatch Fault that runs right you know right through campus. It was a little bit further to the west. It is true that when you have an earthquake cl in close proximity, but maybe on a different fault or a different part of a fault, that it can affect the stresses that are built up along that fault. So in some cases you hear about an earthquake in one place triggering an earthquake in another place. That's, that is well-documented geologically. In some cases, the opposite can be true, that an earthquake in one place makes it less likely for an earthquake to happen in a different location. But here, from what I've heard, this doesn't really change our predictions, or, or I shouldn't say predictions because predicting earthquakes is super hard, um, but it doesn't change kind of what we believe about the size of an earthquake that could happen here in Salt Lake. On the note of predicting, or not predicting, but kind of understanding when and how and why an earthquake could happen, how do geologists do that? What do they look at? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, correcting it from prediction to understand is, is really good because, um, you know, whenever we use the pr word prediction, it makes people think that we you, we have an absolute like, oh, it's going to happen in the next year or so. And that's that's really not the way that we think about earthquakes. But in terms of understanding the history of the earthquakes that have happened here, the, the way that we really do that is by looking at the, at the rocks and we look at the deposits that are characteristic of earthquakes. So in some cases we can actually see, like I was talking about earlier, that we can see the fault scarp. So we see this exposed surface that is the fault. We can measure how much that's moved and we can kind of see when there's been significant movement along that fault in historic times. In some cases, we can use things like, we can use landslides as a way to say when an earthquake has happened, because oftentimes when we get major earthquakes, we get landslides associated with that. We can also get what's called liquefaction, which is actually the, the soil starts to behave like a liquid. It kind of flows out over the surface and we can date when those liquefaction events have happened. And so it gives us an idea of when earthquakes have happened in the past. And in geology, we always like to say that understanding the past is the key to understanding the present or the future. And so if we know how often these earthquakes have happened in the past, if we know what the typical spacing is between these different earthquakes, then we can start to understand, well, how likely is it that we get an earthquake during the next hundred years or so. Did those, what are those patterns looking like in our area specifically with the Wasatch Fault? So I think if we go back, um, you know, over the last 14 or 15,000 years, so going back a pretty long, long ways, we typically get major earthquakes here uh, on our section in Salt Lake of the Wasatch Fault about every 1400 years or so, 14 to 1500 years. Um, and our last major earthquake here was about 1400 years ago. And this always makes people nervous, right? Like the same thing happens when we talk about Yellowstone with, you know, how long it's been since Yellowstone's erupted. But just because it's been 1400 years, that's just an average number. It really doesn't change all that much, you know, the likelihood of something because 1400 years is a very long time. And so to say, oh, well, it's going to happen next year relative to 1400 years is a very small amount of time. So will it happen again? Yeah, it will happen at some point. How far into the future is really tough to say, though. So on that note of feeling nervous and knowing that <laughs> something could happen relatively soon, is there anything that you want 
listeners to know to maybe ease their minds if that's possible <laughs> um, or how they can like educate themselves and just understand how this all works. Sure. Um, you know, I think that it's important, like you said, to be educated about this. That That's kind of step one is understanding that there is a risk of this happening. Um, you know, it, it for me, it goes back to um, being a little kid in school and and one of the things that they teach you in school that so far has not actually affected me is stop, drop, and roll, right? Like, oh, you're going to catch on fire at some point and you need to stop, drop, and roll. It's kind of like a natural thing that's kind of baked into us at this point. And at some point it might save us, right? Like we might catch on fire and we might need to stop, drop, and roll and it will just be natural. We want earthquake preparedness to be kind of the same thing, that we're thinking about it on a semi-regular basis so that if a large earthquake does happen, we kind of react naturally. That it's not like we panic and we freak out and we go running across campus and we don't know what to do. And so I think it's important to educate ourselves, to understand that the risk is, the risk is real, um, that if an earthquake does happen, and there are, there are these events that happen every year, the, the United States Geological Survey hosts what they call the Great Shakeout which is basically a practice earthquake drill, like you would do a fire drill in school or these great shakeouts. And we've done them here on campus in the past. Basically, we, we would say like at 11 a.m. on this date, we're gonna pretend there's a big earthquake and everyone acts like there's an earthquake. So that might mean, you know, if you're in your home or in your dorm, that you are hiding under a desk. If you're outside, it means that you're not running into a building because that's actually more dangerous. You want to find kind of an open space outside. So I think that by practicing these earthquake drills and just kind of mentally understanding that this risk exists, uh, we can we can be better prepared in the event of an earthquake. Awesome. I think that's a great way to close out. Those are all the questions that I have. Cool. Um, unless you have anything else you want to say. Mm -hmm. Any groundbreaking geology <laughs> That's, Oh, you've got to throw oh, that I in there. I didn't even mean to do that. You've got to throw <laughs> that in there. Hey, thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Westminster Stories. I hope you enjoyed that. Just in case you weren't already aware, you can find this episode and every other episode of Westminster Stories wherever you listen to podcasts. So whether that's Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts, it's on all of them. Isn't that cool? I think that's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty great. Kat, if they wanted to read the story or read any other story the forum has published, where could they find those? They can potentially find them across the Westminster campus in our print issues that we have out at the beginning of every month. They can also find all of our stories on our website at wc4media.com. And then if they want to get just like small little updates on things happening around campus, potentially in between the publication of stories, where could they go for those? Great question, Anthony. They can find them on our social media platforms at WC Form Media. We have a Facebook, a Twitter, and an Instagram. Kat, that was marvelous. I had I had faith in you, and you did not disappoint. I really had to wrap my brain around that one. <laughs> Three takes later. Special thanks to all of the other members of the editing team and our advisor, Matt Baker. Thank you again for listening to another episode of Westminster Stories. Till next time, this is Anthony Giorgio. And Kat Taylor. Signing off.